This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here in this pre-Oscars week of excitement with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Canfield. Hello. So this is, believe it or not, our last episode before the Oscars, which are happening this Sunday. So we're going to talk about all the news about the presenters and the performances at the show and then share our final predictions in every single category. And then at the end of the episode, you'll hear my conversation with Bronwyn Cosgrave, who is a podcaster and historian about Oscar fashion, about what this season has been like and what she's looking forward to on the red carpet. And a reminder that this Sunday, it's not just the Oscars, it's the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Uh, Anything can happen inside that party this year is no exception. And you can tune in to watch the live stream from the red carpet immediately after the Academy Awards. You can see all the arrivals. We'll have celebrity interviews from our hosts, Kat Sadler and Phoebe Robinson. And you'll get a glimpse inside the most star party of the year, if we don't say so ourselves. You can watch it all happen on Twitter, or you can go to vf.com slash Oscar party and say hello to me. I'll be helping with all the coverage. And one more programming note. Starting next week, we will have two episodes of Little Gold Men every week. It's going to be the same show that you know, but we're going to be splitting our interviews into their own standalone episodes. Next week will be a little bit different because we'll have a Monday episode immediately after the Oscars and then an interview running Thursday. But after that, every Tuesday, you can hear an interview with us talking to some of the most fascinating people in Hollywood. And on Thursday, hear the regular show. We hope you guys follow us along with this shift. We think it's going to be great. And stay tuned to see who uh, next week's first standalone interview will be. So before we get into the predictions uh, for the Oscars, which are coming up in a few days, um, it's been an interesting couple of days because COVID is still here. I don't know if you guys heard about this. Um, Rebecca, I think you might have been witnessing the brunt of what it takes to attend an event this week in Los Angeles. There's a lot of things happening in person. In-person award season is back. But there's a lot of testing required, even before uh, this variant uh, coming out of the UK. And the BAFTAs, which we can talk about, seem to make it even more important. So, Rebecca, what's your testing rate? Benjamin, like, and how are you keeping track of all of this? Um, I have a very intense Google Doc. <laughs> um, I have two today, which is to attend an event tonight. And then both the Governor's Awards and the Oscars themselves are requiring two tests um, two days apart. So because of that system, there's some I, c- I can do at home and some I have to make sure to go to a lab and some I need a quick turnaround and some I ne- can do the longer turnaround. So yeah, it's intense, but 
you know, because of what we've sort of heard, what happened at BAFTA and things, I, I'm all for the testing, um, but it, it has it is going to take up a large chunk of my time this week, for sure. Well, and speaking of BAFTA, you were at the PGA Awards in L.A. on Saturday, and that was kind of the talk of the room. Can you just explain what happened at BAFTA? The night of the PGAs, there had been a breakfast panel with some of the producers, and everyone noticed that Kenneth Branagh called in remotely rather than attending. And that was weird because he has been at everything. And so at the night of the PGAs, I was asking around, and it turns out that Kenneth and Kieran Hines both got COVID at the BAFTAs. And then everyone I talked to was just like, oh, everyone got COVID at the BAFTAs. Like it was just a (laughs) statement people were making. And I'm like, we're standing in a room with hundreds of people and you're saying this like it's normal. So it it really made me realize that there had been an event, um, you know, and then we heard about Lord and Miller also uh, caught it at BAFTA. And, and apparently a lot of, you know, people who work with these people and were in the room also got it as well. So it was startling to be in a crowded room and hear about this. It sounds like most of those people should be better by the Oscars, but there is a lot of concern that it's going to keep spreading this week. I had a similar experience. We had the uh, New York Film Critics Circle dinner much delayed uh, last week. And I was, you know, there in my blazer, just uh, kind of in the little cocktail hour. And um, one of the other members who is more privy to like who's presenting and who is actually showing up to get their awards was like, oh, yeah, I think a lot of people aren't coming because everyone got COVID at the BAFTAs. And I was like, so should we be here? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't want to give COVID to Lady Gaga or Martin Scorsese or Jim Jarmusch or Al Gore, who showed up for some reason. Um, But we were all we all had to be tested, and then I, from as far as I know, everything was okay. So I think maybe the UK, having been forever laxer about masks and things like that, maybe that was I hope an isolated BAFTA incident that won't carry over to the US. Yeah, David, you'll be at the Oscars uh, with Rebecca uh, on Sunday, and you're going through a similar testing regimen. What do you think this will mean for the Oscars? Are you worried that like half of the nominees won't be able to be there? Um, well, we've heard that. Nominees are being extra cautious right now, along with their teams. I think that, not that it's good that anyone gets COVID, but it was probably a bit of a reality check that, you know, there are two PCR rounds to go through before you can be cleared to go to the Oscars. And unlike um, vaccinations, which have been a bit murky in terms of requirements with the Oscars, that's really strict. And um, I don't think anyone wants to miss uh, who's who's nominated, especially those who have a shot at winning. So um, I think that's one potential shakeup is this is a week voting is has concluded as of this podcast um there are the governor's awards on friday and i'm curious to see how many people are going to go to that because they're usually a campaign stop but there's really no incentive especially if there is a kind of vulnerability there to go ahead of time but otherwise uh to richard's point i think that they are being as careful as they can um, with the multiple testing rounds and I expect the show to go off mostly without a hitch. Yeah, it's it is a week for parties. uh, Oftentimes, you know, I'll be out in L.A. by the time people listen to this, which is very exciting for me. And in years past, there have been, you know, like there was a party for 1917 the Thursday or Friday before the Oscars uh, last year. And Vanity Fair hosts some parties, but it is a much dicier environment for it. I, I think a lot of people who are vaccinated have come to a place of COVID being like, okay, well, if I get it, it won't be great, but like I'll live with my life. But if the high stakes is if you get it, you can't go to the Oscars if you're a nominee. Like, of course, they're being cautious. That's that's the whole reason you do all this, right? Right. And there's a, a wide age range of nominees, too. So what what someone getting it, you know, it really depends on who you're talking about uh, in terms of the yeah, significance yeah, yeah. of it. 
Yeah, I, I hope Anthony Hopkins, who wasn't there, uh, who was supposed to be a presenter this year, he wasn't there last year to receive his Best Actor Oscar. Let Anthony Hopkins come to the Oscars. Do not endanger him. He is too <laughs> valuable. Um, well, speaking of the show and presenters, um, we should talk about what the Academy has been announcing in terms of who will be performing and presenting at the Oscars. As you listen to this, there will probably be more names announced. We're recording on Tuesday. Um, the latest batch we've heard included Sean White, Kelly Slater, and Tony Hawk, who are all, you know, kind of extreme sports athletes, and DJ Khaled, who was, he was in Pitch Perfect 3, so he has an IMDb. I wrote a piece yesterday kind of defending the idea of a Big Ten Oscar ceremony, where if these people want to show up and talk about how much they love movies, great. I have no idea if they'll actually do that, and I think— People who are skeptical about the Oscars just trying to draw in maybe teenage boys who love Tony Hawk, I guess, even though he's a full Gen Xer, but anyway. Um, Richard, where, where's your level of skepticism or maybe cautious optimism that maybe this could actually work? I mean, I've written about this kind of thing in the past to a much more minor degree, which is like, why do you have Jimmy Kimmel host when he doesn't care about the Oscars? He rolls his eyes and kinds of like, you know does a little aside to the audience being like, can you believe they care about this stuff? You know, like that's kind of insulting to people who actually do care and pay attention. We know even the people who care know that there is a high degree of frivolity and like we are, you know, this is not like the the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, we get that. But I think that having presenters who are so far afield of what the show is about um, in, in order to, we'd have to assume cynically real in viewers who wouldn't normally pay attention. That feels a little bit, rude like we have time for tony hawk but we don't have time for best editing or you know whatever mm -hmm. like it just it this has been such a confused process this year and um such a demoralizing one for i think people in the industry and also people like us who care about these things um both professionally and just personally uh and i just don't really know why those signals don't seem to be reaching the academy or abc's ears it they, they seem to be tuning that out in favor of these kind of crazy schemes to, you know, change the DNA of the show so it's more appealing to people. And, uh, you know, as we've all said on this podcast before, I kind of think that that big populist ship has sailed and it's time now to turn to the people who remain and say, like, OK, how can we make the best show for all of these people? Um, mm -hmm. And I don't want to I don't want to be cynical about these presenters because I don't like I don't know. I don't know what they have planned for them, but I, I hope it's not just a like people walking on stage and being like what a weird thing anyway here's your thing here's your trophy i don't care i don't I, that's what i'm scared of i want to know who's the reporter going out to the skate parks in venice beach and being like will you watch the oscars did you know tony hawk is presenting because i just, you might have just gotten yourself an assignment right? no. i think it's you yeah. rebecca because <laughs> yeah I, I just don't know who they think they're gonna get by adding these presenters because you know, um, Will Packer did mention to me that there were going to be some people showing up from outside Hollywood, but I, I don't, I just don't know if this is the, the way to go. It just, I agree with Richard. It just doesn't feel like this is going to reach their goal. If it, it all can. feels a little poochy from The Simpsons, you know, mm. <laughs> like let's bring in something cool. I mean, maybe maybe I'm just thinking of that because of the skateboard, but like unless Jessica <laughs> Chastain is doing a half pipe down to the microphone to give her speech, like I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that we need skateboarders at the Oscars. <laughs> a degree of the intrigue level is, will this be a train wreck? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Which I guess is not the worst way to to get people's attention and maybe drum up the ratings a little bit. But <laughs> it just feels like a strange overcorrection to last year. And I wonder if it is a kind of 
make or break moment for them where you can have, I mean, I don't even know who thinks Tony Hawk is a ratings draw in 2022, but um, if they truly believe that he is and he proves not to be, um, is that the signal to ABC and the Academy that, as Richard said, and I agree with him, that the populist ship has sailed and that this is just no longer a viable way to broadcast the Oscars? There was a, I forget who who wrote the piece, but there was a really good piece out there about, um, I think it was Justin Chang at the LA Times who wrote that the Academy is honoring better, more interesting, in some cases, smaller movies than they have in the past. And there's this kind of glaring disconnect where the show itself seems embarrassed by that and is trying to do everything it can, seemingly, to ignore that and and not present that for viewers and present them a kind of artificial, strange version of the movie year and the Oscar year um, for the people watching at home. And I just don't know who's going to buy that, whether it's the people who love the Oscars or the people who don't care about the Oscars, um, which leaves you with very few people. Yeah, the thing that I was trying to get across in the thing in the piece I wrote yesterday as, as we record this is that I, I hope that they get Tony Hawk to watch Belfast and get him to talk about it. Like, you have to celebrate the movies that you have, but I think you can bring in a big tent of people to talk about those movies because the thing that we all love about the Oscars, I think, is that it shines a spotlight on them and gets people who are like, oh, I didn't really know if I would like Coda, but now I'll go check it out. And if you're getting those people to represent that power of the Oscars, I think you can really accomplish something. But we just have no idea if that's what they're going to do. And I think recent Oscar history suggests that it might be a little, a lot more uh, Poochie-centric than that. And look, there have been, like, funny presenters in the past who are, who are sort of incongruously at the Oscars. You know, it, sometimes it was like, oh, these two stars of these new, this new H- ABC show happen to be, you know, like presenting <laughs> best costume design. Okay, sure. Um, so it's not that new, I guess, in a way. But I think it's just, it, and I have nothing personally against Tony Hawk, Kelly Slater, or Sean White, or DJ Khaled, or whoever else. Like, fine. But um, I just hope, like you said, Katie, that they they contextualize it well, um, because otherwise it seems increasingly like. The Democratic Party being like, oh, we don't want to alienate the right. And so they don't really stand in their conviction about what they believe in. And I just kind of feel like the Academy and ABC are sort of doing a similar thing where it's like, but do you actually care about this? I know the Academy does, but ABC certainly doesn't. But I just think that like that kind of constant chasing, chasing, chasing an uninterested group of people um, is going to keep yielding silly and fruitless results. I do have to say that at the Critics' Choice, um, when the presenter got up to give the final award of the night... The Hollywood type people I was sitting around were all like, who is this person? Um, And it was the coach of the Rams. But, you know, sometimes these like outside or people that come in to present don't exactly hit off well with the room either. So because, you know, people who love movies and love Hollywood and everything like that. But obviously this these decisions are not being made to play to the room. (laughs) So we'll see. That was happening at my house, too, not knowing who that guy was. <laughs> yeah. You weren't alone. My <laughs> house, <you>. too. <laughs> yeah. Um, any other, any last um, presenter or show thoughts before we get into our predictions? There's a rumor that Beyonce will perform from the Compton Tennis Course, which, sure, that sounds fun. Um, anything else have your intrigue this week? What is this thing about a band with Sheila E. and Travis Barker? It's real throughout it's, the show. It's the thing, Richard. You did not dream that, Richard. <laughs> like, what? What year is it? <laughs> It's all years, uh, all of the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have this Oscar recap coming out on uh, when this 
episode drops actually um, on Thursday, but um, you know, that was the funny Glenn Close, Donald Sutherland thing. And it's like, okay, so I guess we could get used to a sort of just funny other celebrities doing a weird task during, throughout the whole show. Like, but <laughs> Travis Barker and Sheila E, that, that is, um, that's something. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to manifest. Maybe they want to get away from the classic Bill Conti led orchestra or whatever. Maybe that's the, the strategy, but. Well, last year it was Questlove, right? Wasn't he was, like yeah. DJing? So I guess it's more in that vein. That's stuck from last year, I guess. Yeah. Well, now he has an Oscar nomination. So Travis Barker is next. Next year, Who's always, I've said, you know, Questlove yeah. and Travis Barker, synonymous. In, in yeah, my yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was also disturbed by the report that Amy Schumer was striving to get Zelensky onto the broadcast. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> How serious was she about that? I never, I, could, I didn't get a good read on that. It seemed like she meant it. It's because she said, I'm not, you know, I don't produce the show. So I, it, it was a strange quote. I suppose it could have been a joke. It wasn't covered as a joke. Yeah. I mean, I get it. He's like the most famous person on the planet right now, arguably, but also he has other things yes. to focus on. <laughs> he has other things going on. I, I just, I think it, it, it contributed to my fears of these really desperate feeling pleas for relevancy and attention. Um, it just felt in that vein. And I think we're, I've heard one too many Stories like that where I'm expecting Tony Hawk to do an ollie, like, in the middle of the the Dolby or something. I just, I don't know what to expect at this point, but it's, it's a little unnerving. I'm also unnerving. I'm unnerved by the, did you guys read the thing? I think it was in Variety that, um, I think about halfway through the show, they're going to behead West End Caleb on stage. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that's extreme. The TikTok views will be huge, though. (laughs) But that's for SAG-AFTRA. They're not in the Academy. (laughs) Oh, so now the moment maybe you've all been waiting for. Uh, we're going to predict the winners of the Oscars, which uh, feels like a fool's errand every year, uh, maybe even more so this year. We'll we'll save the big toss-up of the night for the end, I think, just like the Oscars themselves. Um, so we'll start kind of in uh, all categories are important, but we'll start with the shorts. I think those are an easy one to knock out, especially because Richard and Joe Reed and I talked about them a few weeks ago. And Joe Reed wrote about them for VF.com, so you can find that. Um, you remember there's the Riz Ahmed one, uh, which I think is going to win. There's the really violent one about the torturer in Chile. Um, Richard, do you have anything to add from what we talked about in the short shorts a few weeks ago, or should people hear your predictions there? Yeah, I think we I think we we zeroed in on on some likely winners. The the live action short with Riz Ahmed, that's the long goodbye, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that will win just because of its star potential i wish that alakachu the one from kyrgyzstan would would have a chance because i think that's the the most interesting complete film uh short film and then in the animated uh i guess we decided that it would be robin robin which we didn't love but has celebrity voices and beautiful animation and is from a studio that the the oscars have been friendly to in the past yeah from Ardman and distributed by netflix too yeah and maybe box ballet which i thought might be the second most accessible maybe it's country of origin would be a sticking yes, point. It's, the, it's point. the Russian one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in documentary, I think we are pretty certain that audible from Netflix, which is a short doc about um, uh, a deaf high school football team in Maryland and is beautifully shot. It looks very Friday night lights meets cheer. Um, it's very character driven. It's it. And it's, it's about something that obviously is really pertinent to this year's Oscars with Coda and Drive My Car, both dealing with um, deaf performers and 
um, the deaf community. So yeah, I think those three we've 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 zeroed on well, but maybe there's dissension among our ranks. I don't know. Yeah, I would go with those. And David and Rebecca, I think you guys are still out on the shorts. So we're gonna. Unless you want to just weigh in blindly, which you're sounds welcome. right to me. I trust your judgment. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, Rebecca, we'll throw it to you. I'm going to go um, up in uh, the predictions that we are all writing, which you can read at VF.com, um, where David and Rebecca and I are kind of handicapping who we think will win. And Richard is going to weigh on what should win as the, uh, you know, the critical voice among us. Um, but Rebecca, you have visual effects, which is one of the few technical categories that will actually be on uh, the live broadcast, probably because Spider-Man is nominated. Um, what are you leaning toward there? A few of these categories I'm going to be repeating myself, but I'm I'm definitely going with Dune because it's just so heavily nominated in the crafts, first of all. And I was actually sitting with Denis Villeneuve at the luncheon. And so whenever they were calling nominees up to uh, for the class photos, which were done in small groups that year, you know, we'd all clap whenever it was a Dune person. And literally it was like every third person was a Dune person because they're so (laughs) heavily nominated in the crafts. Um, And obviously the visual effects are stunning. Um, It's won sort of the the precursors. It just feels like it's a a lock for them. Um, My only question was, you know, do they try to give Spider-Man something because, you know, there were there was a group of people who had hoped it would kind of make up Best Picture Run. But uh, um, but I really think Dune has this one locked. Yeah, I don't th- I think when you have a, a visual effects uh, masterpiece that is also a Best Picture nominee, it's pretty hard mm-hmm. to beat that, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody want to pick something that isn't Dune? Well, to echo a, a recent Twitter trend. Can you believe Andrew Garfield's 38? He looks like he's 25. So maybe (laughs) that should get best visual effects. I hate that. It's like 38 is not 70, for Christ's sake. I might be a little sensitive given my age. Um, (laughs) But um, no, Dune, I think um, it's it's such an artful employment of a deployment, I don't know, uh, of of CGI uh, in a way that I feel like these other nominees, Free Guy, Shang-Chi, Spider-Man especially, they look I mean, they're ornate, certainly, but but it, it's very clear to me like when something is green screened and when it's not. And in Dune, it, it that feels all a bit more seamless and artful. So, um, yeah, I think that's the right choice. Yep. Um, well, I'll take my turn to talk about Dune because I have the best sound category to predict. And a, a big part of why I want to predict Dune is because of a piece Rebecca did that I love, which is about not only the sound of the sandworm, but also the visual effects and production design and everything else. But just learning what they did to make the sound of the sandworm, which you know, it's so convincing on screen that you don't think about how they just had to make it up about what that thing would sound like and looking up whale sounds. And one of the sound designers stuck a microphone like literally in his throat from what he told you, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great story that you should read. And um, again, it feels like such a technical achievement that they would be crazy not to go with it. The only thing I would wonder is if West Side Story uh, makes a run for it because musicals are kind of famously challenging sound-wise and um, West Side Story is such a marvel. But I would go for Dune. Everybody else agree? Agree. Yep. The sound in West Side Story really does pop, though. Yeah. And, and, you know, those kind of, those classic sounds from the movie Roaring Back um, could could hit some nostalgic notes, but I don't think enough. Yeah, like that moment when you hear the uh, the whistle, the da da da. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, like a, 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 your heart lifts. Um, okay, David, let's go to makeup and hairstyling, which you're predicting. This is one of the categories that won't be handed out on the air, but I think Jessica Chastain will be there to watch it be handed out, right? She hopefully will be, and she, I think <laughs> she will be happy that she was there because I think the eyes of, the, of Tammy Faye will will take this one. 
It's had a strong run with industry awards, um, and it's in this subcategory uh, here in this field of movies that match up with a lead acting winner like Darkest Hour or The Iron Lady and the, the transformation of a real life historical icon and a star that Hollywood loves evidently by the precursors for best actress. Um, it, it all kind of lines up for the movie. And I don't know that there's uh, a particularly clear challenger here. Um, there's certainly the possibility that Dune just completely runs the table. And I think the makeup work in this movie is actually really beautiful, but it's it's a little bit subtle with the lead characters, which is probably the problem with the movie. It's, a lot of its work is in the the ensemble and background actors, aside from say Stellan Skarsgård, <laughs> terrifying, <laughs> terrifying you as he looms over us all. I'm also interested in Cruella, which has a very you know distinctive, specific um, punk glamour aesthetic. I think that that will generate some attention here, but I think Tammy Faye definitely fits the fits the mold best. And that one's going to be given out on a BMX bike course by TJ Levin, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did like uh, bringing up Joe Reed again. He did tweet that uh, as part of this trade, the X Games will be hosted by Isabel Huppert and Jim Broadbent next year. So everyone should just be prepared. She for can that. shred, though, uh, Isabel. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know that. Um, Okay, Rebecca, you are on the production design prediction, um, which is a category I always love. It's so, so fun to talk about. So how did you sort that one out? Should I just replay what I said previously? <laughs> just keep playing it over and over again. Um, That's going to be our award this week, too, is Rebecca just saying Dune. Dune. Um, yeah, so I picked Dune. Both Dune and Nightmare Alley did well at the Art Directors Guild Awards. They both won in separate categories. But, you know, Dune coming in with 10 Oscar nominations, um, while Nightmare Alley only had four, it just... It feels like it's so supported in, in so many different categories. It just feels like it's going to win. I mean, you know, Guillermo is obviously known as a, a as a craftsman as well. And that film is beautifully done and has so many um, beautiful settings in it. But I, I feel, again, this is going to do. I am interested in Nightmare Alley because the production design just stuck out so much mm-hmm. uh, in that movie. But but I also wanted to ask you, David, you've really harped on the fact that Power of the Dog was not a likely production design winner and it snuck in into this category. Does that make you feel like it's a threat to the win at all? Not here. Um, for my next category, I will I will discuss, <laughs> I will discuss the chances of Power of the Dog in the in the craft categories. Um, but, you know, because voting is opened up to a wider membership, it, it is worth paying attention to Power of the Dog having so much below the line support. It's interesting that Nightmare Alley doesn't seem to have much of a chance here because I remember when that movie first screened, it was like, oh, that's winning production design. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, It just popped so immediately. And I think in most other years it would. Um, But to have such an artful, colossal blockbuster like Dune, it's it's hard to overtake that when you just see the sheer scale of its set pieces. But yeah, I I don't think Power of the Dog is, this is probably the place where it's honestly least likely to win, I would say. Mm. Can I say a should win here that I would, will diverge from the the prediction? Yeah. Um, I I understand. Dune looks amazing, but I also think I'm thinking back to something I think Richard Brody from the New Yorker wrote. I know that the, this is the deliberate intent, but those spaces look so sterile and not lived in. It just doesn't feel like anyone lives in this universe except for the main characters. And so it's just a subjective difference. Whereas I feel like West Side Story is mm. so textural and lived in and intimate and and it feels a little bit stagey kind of an homage to the original film but also it feels real at the same time which i would have to imagine is a tricky balance to figure out um so that would be my my vote seconded and 
Adam Stockhausen has had a hell of a year because he, for whatever my other feelings on the French Dispatch, his work on that movie was really stunning. And like Johnny Greenwood, he will likely not win despite doing a lot of amazing work this year. Yeah, I think we can all agree that any surprise win for West Side Story in the craft categories would would thrill us all probably because yeah. it's such a beautifully made movie that seems likely to win none of the craft categories, mm-hmm. which I guess brings me to costume design, which I'm supposed to be predicting. Um, I watched Cruella because I was interviewing Nadia Stacey uh, for a makeup piece. She's nominated in the makeup category, which I think is also pretty remarkable work. Um, but Jenny Bevan's costumes in that, I mean, fashion is such a big part of the plot of Cruella, which is a pretty silly movie, but has pretty unbelievable costumes in it. Like the stuff that uh, Emma Stone's Cruella kind of comes up with is really theatrical and over the top. Jenny Bevan's a, she's won twice before. She won for Mad Max Fury Road wearing that um, leather jacket and won for, oh God, I think it's A Room with a View. Anyway, back in the, yeah, A Room with a View. And I think she's a pretty strong contender there. She won the Costume Designers Guild Award for period film, uh, beating out House of Gucci and West Side Story. Um, I think Dune is probably a strong contender there too. Jacqueline West's work is pretty amazing and again for kind of like making up an entire world um but i would go with corella what do you guys think yeah i lean toward corella um dune would definitely fall into that vein of of mad max Fury road like you mentioned katie or black panther which one here but Mm -hmm. i don't know that those costumes are quite as pop quite as much as as those movies and most of the time this category honors a little women a phantom thread you know just Beautiful gowns, beautiful gowns. <laughs> um, and I, I expect that to to follow through here because it's true that the work in Cruella, if it were to win anywhere, I would be happy for it to win here. My should win is not even nominated. So um, <laughs> which, which would be the we've already talked about it a lot on this podcast, the absolute exquisite looks in Bergman Island. Mm. Which, when I interviewed Vicky Creep, she was like, actually, all of that was very intentional. So there is real design happening in that movie, and it's beautiful. But I just want them to, like, have that capsule collection so I can buy it. Um, Yeah, well, I hope you have an extra $100,000 lying around. Um, Rebecca, you interviewed Paul Taswell, the costume designer of West Side Story, which made me, well, so many of your pieces have just made me appreciate the crafts in these movies so much. So I would be, I'd be thrilled for him to win, but I don't expect it. Yeah, I, I, if, if I could do the, I wish they would win category, which is the most fun. Um, I, <laughs> I definitely would love him to win. I think he, he, like many of the people who worked on that film, just put so much thought into, you know, throwing back to the old, but really making everything feel um, new and original to that story. And and I think he did a wonderful job. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, let's jump up to best editing. Uh, David, I suspect this is where you wanted to talk about the power of the dog's chances and crafts. Yes. 
Okay. Well, I would have done score two, but it, I knew whichever category you gave me next, I would be <laughs> able to talk about it. Power of the Dog is in a really interesting, kind of stressful position in the craft categories in that it's running second, seemingly, in a lot of places. And I think editing is one of them where there's a pretty clear front runner that most of the time it's Dune in the case of editing, which is what I'm predicting, it's King Richard. But it, it's a movie that if it overperforms even slightly, it's going to win in one of those categories at least. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's kind of bizarre if you think about a movie winning Best Director and nothing else, which I think we're kind of slightly le- you know, leaning toward at this point for Power of the Dog. Um, you know, past movies that have won Director and not Picture, like The Revenant or Roma, really cleaned up in the craft categories. And yeah. that's something I'm thinking about. Um just because the movie was so admired by the craft's nominating branches that it's it's strange to not predict anything for it to win below the line. That said, I'm not predicting Power of the Dog to win Best Editing. Um, this, this has been an interesting category. I think a lot of people assumed Dune would win it, um, but it was nominated at both um, the Ace Editing Guild and BAFTA and lost, uh, respectively, to King Richard at Ace, which is nominated for the Oscar in No Time to Die, at BAFTA, which is not nominated. Um, and that usually indicates that it's not doesn't have the strength to win this category if if it can't win where it is nominated. I think in one sense that could open the door for Power of the Dog. It wasn't nominated at BAFTA and generally the movie hasn't been as strong with guilds as it was with the Academy, so you could argue that, you know, a more broad skewing guild like Ace would go to King Richard. Um but I, I actually do think that BAFTA, which did not nominate King Richard for Best Editing not giving it to any of the Oscar nominees indicates uh, that King Richard is well-positioned because um, it's kind of the nominee that was clearly the one to win, and I just didn't see it. But Pamela Martin mm. is is an industry darling. She's known for family tales with a little spin, like she did Little Miss Sunshine and The Fighter. King Richard's definitely in that vein. And then on top of that, you have these tennis matches, which are really um, exciting and flashy, and she does... Um, a really lovely job cutting that movie. Uh, so I think she's she's a clear front runner here for her first Oscar. It is an interesting thought experiment to think of people kind of ticking off their ballot and, you know, not voting for Power of the Dog in various craft categories and then getting to Best Picture. Or if they do vote for Power of the Dog and then get to Best Picture, like the, you go through all of these and you're like, well, it had so much power in all these crafts. Am I not going to give it Best Picture? I mean, we'll right. get to that. But it, its presence all over the ballot is a factor, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess speaking of it, too, uh, cinematography, Rebecca, you're predicting that one. Um, and just reading your write-up, like, how are we not talking more about how Ari Wagner could be the first woman to win this category? But that hasn't been part of the narrative at all. I know. It, it's all I think about. And, and you know, when we're making these predictions, I think we all have a battle between our head, which looks at the numbers and the precursors, and then our heart that's like, this should win. But Richard gets to do the fun part and, and do the should wins. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, if if... Ari won, obviously that would make history. She'd be the first female DP to ever win this category. And her work is amazing in that film. And and I I think she really deserves it. Um, but I think it's between her and Dune. I get here I am again on my my Dune box. Um, <laughs> because obviously Greg Frazier's work is also phenomenal in that film. So and Greg Frazier, you you know, won at the ASC awards. So to me, I'm I'm leaning towards Dune with my heart saying power of the dog. So and and I do, you know, with what David is saying and and sort of the the possibility of power of the dog 
winning in some of these categories, I do think this is one where that could happen. And I'd love to see it. Yeah, I think I might predict Power of the Dog, honestly, I, based on, you know, I a bias toward that movie. And even though I like Dune a whole lot, too, but I think it's just so beautiful. And if you're if you like the movie at all, I think this is a, a, mm-hmm. a satisfying place to vote for it, especially if you've already like voted for Dune and visual effects and sound. Like maybe this is a place where you, where you might feel inspired to sweat the ball, especially because everyone's voting on this in the final round. You know, it's not just cinematographers. Yeah, I hope I'm wrong with my prediction. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Richard, who should win? That's an interesting question because I agree that Ari Wagner's work in Power of the Dog is amazing. Obviously, Dune looks incredible, as does Nightmare Alley, as does West Side Story. But then I come to Macbeth, Tragedy of Macbeth, um, Bruno Del Bonnell. And that is that is the outlier here because, I mean, I know that there are sound stages involved in, in, in at least three of these other movies, but like... Macbeth is so just created from the ground up. It, it's not, as far as I'm aware, using any natural light. It is just like a theatrical production that, that doesn't feel like a staged play. It feels like a, a movie. And I think there's so much reliance on cinematography in that project that I would probably vote for that just because it didn't look like anything else I saw in 2021. Hmm. Well, let's go to this original song, um, which I chose to predict because this category is such a hobby horse of mine year after year. I find it fascinating and weird. And I I lean toward narrative on this one, and I think that Limoel Miranda will EGOT uh, with Dos Orguitas, which is famously not the most interesting song in Encanto at all, um, but is the one that they nominated. Um, but I was looking at the fact that Billie Eilish won the Critics' Choice Award uh, for No Time to Die that she wrote with Phineas. I don't really like that song that much. Uh, I don't love any of the nominees that much, so it's not like a heart thing for me. But I do think it's a it's a really legitimate showdown between Limo Miranda and Billie Eilish and Phineas. I, I would lean toward Encanto and, you know, the We Don't Talk About Bruno effect, bumping it there. Um, but anyone want to go with Billie Eilish instead? It's funny because I think a couple of months ago I would have felt that it was obviously Billie, but I, I agree the, the sort of Encanto boost and the We Don't Talk About Bruno boost. And Lynn being at literally every event for the last two weeks <laughs> makes me feel <laughs> like... Not have, maybe he did get COVID. Hopefully he doesn't have and COVID. And he always brings <laughs> his dad. It's so cute. But I'm like, isn't his dad tired of these things? I mean, we're all tired of them. <laughs> but but he also almost has a COVID. That's a Cesar and Oscar of VMA <laughs> and Indie Spirit. And yep. a, I don't know what the, the D is. but Drama Desk Award. Yeah. Um, I also think, uh, you know, a slight mark against um, No Time to Die, which would be my choice to win is that it came out, what, 15 years ago at this point? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Literally you know, before the pandemic began. And Encanto is much fresher in people's minds. There's obviously the hit song that's not the nominated song, but still, like, that soundtrack is in people's minds. Their kids are watching it ad nauseum. You know, I just think that, like, and there's the factor of, of having Miranda up there because they also loved Tick, Tick, Boom. And so this is a way to be like, you had a good 2021. Yeah. Uh, well, let's go to best... Best original score, which is the last of the categories that we're going to talk about that will be handed out uh, before the telecast. And actually, we had a listener question I wanted to get to before this category itself, which is if you're having an Oscar party and you're running an Oscar pool, what do you do? We still don't know yet, right, if they will let the public know about who wins these categories before they go in the broadcast. But how does that work? Because there will be people in the room who are going to I know. Like, you guys will be there in the room (laughs) and you can tell us. It's very and I feel like I saw at one point someone suggest that the academy would tweet out the winners, which seems deranged to me. But I don't know. We, it's five days before the Oscars, and we still don't have a plan, right? Everyone just has to get their Oscar party pool ballots in. You know, two hours before <laughs> showtime. I think that's reasonable. We're all adults. You know, 
Just don't don't write it on the fly, you know, when you're actually at the person's house. Just do it ahead of time. Well, like, do you have them show up early so you guys can, like, see who wins on Twitter? Or do you cut them from the pool? Like, this is a logistical problem. Oh, well, no. My Oscar parties start at noon. So I, <laughs> it's, a, it's a real all-day thing. So It's like the Kentucky Derby. You're just yeah. drinking all yeah, day. Yeah, we all wear, do, we, we wear big hats, yeah. <laughs> Arrive by two or don't come at all. <laughs> <laughs> late On time is late, okay? <laughs> uh, I've been running my Oscar parties that way for years, so. Um, oh, yeah. No, I, I think that... The Academy has to control how the winners are announced because there's just no way you're going to be able to convince a huge room full of many angry people for this happening in the first place that you're not allowed to reveal who's won. Like, I just, yeah. I don't think that's possible. And I think they know that. So I would expect them to somehow reveal, I just, there's no good way to do it. I mean, this is just the reality of what they're doing. It's, it's messy. Yeah. Um, well, David, when you're in the room uh, with your phone locked in a box to keep you from tweeting about who won uh, the best original score Oscar, who do you expect to be tweeting about? I will be twiddling my thumbs to write Hans Zimmer as <laughs> fast as I can. Um, no, I, I think that Hans Zimmer, this is this category is a bit strange to me. I mean, I, I do really admire uh, the Dune score, which is really kind of overpowering and immersive and definitely one of, one of the parts of the movie that you can't get out of your head when you leave because it's quite strong, let's say. Um, but I, I found it strange that Johnny Greenwood has not really taken this category, had that momentum to, to sail through. It just felt like this was his year um, between Spencer and the power of the dog. He, he was talked about so much in Telluride, which is not a place where composers are typically talked about a lot. Um, and from there, it's just the, the acclaim for his work and the critical recognition with Critics Awards and things like that. For for those two scores, it seemed like he was the guy. Um, but Hans Zimmer's not won in a long time, despite many, many nominations. This would be his second win. Um, and it, it, like cinematography, to Rebecca's point, it's one of those categories where the, the math is with Dune at this point. But I could easily see uh, Johnny Greenwood pulling it off. One interesting element of, of some of the events we've been going to is that they'll often play the music of a movie that wins. And so at the AFI Awards, the scores of every movie nominated or, or winning that won, I guess, um, would play. And there was a kind of energy in the room when they got to Power of the Dog. And at the DGAs, when Jane Campion won, the music played and there was a kind of energy as we all stood up for her. Um, and I, I wonder if that, something like that could also impact this race at all, that the music does play a role in these events for the bigger awards uh, as we go along. So that was something I was thinking about. But anyway, I still think it's Dune. Do we think a certain Vanity Fair article about uh, film composers could have an impact, too, <laughs> in terms of Hans Zimmer? I like, was wondering about that. You know, Hans Zimmer has made a lot of incredible stuff over the years, but he also works with a lot of other people. And um, I'm not singling him out, but but in this article about this exact industry, there were a lot of people saying that, like, the real people who write a lot of these big mega composer scores are not credited and all that stuff. And so I wonder if might, that might be back of mind for people, but probably not, is my guess. But I, I really like a lot of the the work nominated here. Um, I love the Parallel Mother score by Alberto Iglesias. Um, I think that's very much the nomination as the reward, but richly deserved. Um, and I actually love Nicholas Patel's Don't Look Up score. I wrote a yep. story on him and I listened to some of it again in, in the lead up to that. And it's really imaginative and fun and, and kind of wild, uh, like much of his stuff is. And I think that that 
dynamic between him and Adam McKay is consistently the best parts of their work together. This is just such an insane category to not have on the air when you look at this group. Like mm-hmm. Johnny Greenwood, Nicholas Bertel, and then Jermaine Franco, which she's the first Latina to be nominated in this category. Her win, if it would have happened, would be historic. Which yep. Katie, I'll give Katie a shout out, who's been shouting on my articles this whole um, <laughs> episode. It did a great piece with her. And it just feels like it's it's sad that this group especially is not getting the full treatment this year. Yeah, Jermaine Franco is really interesting, too, because she came up in that system you were talking about of uh, like big composers working with other composers. She worked with John Powell, um, who's worked on the How to Train Your Dragon movies and um, lots of other films. But he really um, it was like her mentor, like he really gave her a leg up. I think she's a really good example of how that system can work um, and is would be a great success story, even if we just got to see her nominated on the air, which we won't. And all but one of these movies are really quite popular. Even Power of the yeah. Dog, you know, they're movies that you'd hear the music on on the show and you'd, you'd know. And I think there'd be that recognition. Um, it's wild that a very worthy category comprising don't look up <laughs> power of the dog, Dune, Encanto is not to be given the live treatment. I, that, that's the one that surprised me the most. Yeah. Um, well, let's jump over to the uh, more categories we'll see on the air. A documentary feature up next with Rebecca, you, you predicted, and I think it seems like a, have a pretty clear front runner, right? Yeah, this feels like a real lock for Summer of Soul. It's it's been winning every award on the way here and and Questlove has been attending a lot of these events and he's definitely one of those people that everyone sort of gravitates to in the room and um you know, it's a really well done documentary that really has that momentum, so it feels like a lock. Um there are a couple categories that I did that, you know, I put Flea as sort of a potential upset, but it also made me sort of upset that it feels like Flea may not win anything after having this sort of historic triple nomination and being such a wonderful film um, that I thought maybe there's a possibility here, but um, it, it really does feel like Summer of Souls got this one. Yeah, I interviewed Questlove and his editor about Summer of Soul and just like got kind of got a whole new appreciation for the huge accomplishment of just archival research and, you know, assembling things like footage of the moon landing with this concert. Like it really, I really like that movie a lot. So I'll be excited to see him win. It's a good story for Sundance. We'll we'll talk more about Coda in a bit. But um, Sundance 2021, really riding hard at this year's Oscars. Yeah. Okay, best animated feature. Um, David, you also found a pretty clear front runner here. Yeah. I know, Katie. You've been you've been pulling for Mitchell's versus the machines, and, and it's it's had those moments where it's like maybe. Um, but after the doubleheader of PGA and BAFTA, and Kanto looks pretty unbeatable here. I'm also looking at Flea. It's I'll do my one should win. I think Flea is a pretty extraordinary movie and um, an extraordinary accomplishment. And I think it's a shame it's probably not going to win anything. Um, but it's such an unusual nominee for this category that, you know, I'd like to think that some of the newer uh, entrants of the Academy would, um, you know, show some support for it here. But I, I, I don't believe that would be remotely enough. Um, Disney will win again. <laughs> yeah. So in the Oscar recap that I have coming up, uh, it's the 2002 ceremony. That was the first year that there was an animated feature um, category that went to, uh, and it went to Shrek. And, I was re- doing a, l- a little bit light research, and they were, you know, that that, that category was um, was kind of controversial when it was introduced because people thought that that would mean that that no animated movie would, you know, 
qualify or, or sort of be put in the running for Best Picture, which has not exactly borne out. I mean, there have been animated Best Picture nominees, not many. But it got me thinking about what this category is. And is it Best Animation, like really inventive use of stop motion or hand-drawn or you know CGI or whatever, computer graphics, all that stuff? Um, or is it more holistically for the film as a whole, for the performances, for the music, for the script, you know? Um, and I don't really know the answer to that. I think it's probably just like it's in the heart of each voter, like how they're how they're deciding on that. Because like Flea, I would pick in the more holistic sense. But like if I'm just going by animation, like Raya and the Last Dragon looks incredible, I think. I think it I think it wins. I think it beats the other four kind of handily. Um, so I don't know. I, but I think that probably Encanto, because it is a mix of really pretty animation and nice everything else that it probably that's why it's going to win. Nice everything else. That's what Richard looks for. <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't like that movie. So I, I, that's just my weird hot take. It's a really good question, though. I mean, the cat- the category always tends to default to the juggernaut when there is one, like a Frozen. Yeah. You you know, never dream of those losing. Um, also, finally, I believe that that whole thing about Shrek and and that category because Shrek was in the Best Picture conversation, however loosely, for a long time there. Anyway, I just remembered that. That well, was Shrek a was a Palm Door contender, as was its sequel, which is very, very strange to me. So, yeah, what a run! Yeah. What a yeah, run! Yeah, the, the years that Disney or Pixar don't win are kind of weird outlier years. Like Spider Man at the Spider Verse won in twenty eighteen over two different sequels: Incredibles two and Ralph Breaks the Internet. Um, and then Rango won in twenty eleven. Rango, um, yes. Which uh, when there were no Disney or Pixar movies, which I don't, I don't get how that happened. I'm gonna have to go back and figure out what happened there. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's a they have such a stranglehold on these categories. And I think Encanto is a is a deserving winner. So I, as much as I love Mitchells and will be rooting for it till the final moment, um, I'm fine with that. Yeah. I mean, in this case, I'm, I'm also totally fine with it. But I, I do think it's worth looking at the category a little bit more closely because it is one place where it feels like popularity just really tends to win out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Rebecca, let's go to another uh, strong frontrunner category with Best International Feature. In your write-up, you said, Drive My Car makes it the only film worth discussing in this category. Very harsh of that yak in the classroom, Rebecca. I'm sorry to the yak, but it, <laughs> it just, I, you know, we, we're, we're sort of trying to hedge if there's an upset and what to even put there. And I was just like, I don't even think I need to because it's just, <laughs> you know, you look at Drive My Car's gigantic success in nominations with with four noms and this is the category that obviously had um you know locked down before nominations and now there's no way it's not going to win obviously and it's won every award leading up to this and it's it's just such a phenomenal film and it, it it's it's sort of a shame to not even discuss the others because obviously there are wonderful films i know we all loved worst person in the world and um flea again is in this category so <laughs> it's just it's just such a wonderful year um, for these international features, but there's no denying Drive My Car. Yeah. It is nice that they're not, for the most part, again, sorry to the yak, uh, (laughs) limited to this category. It's nice to see a lot of them competing elsewhere, um, which doesn't always happen. Yeah. Well, I, uh, speaking of Drive My Car, I guess, I got tasked with predicting adapted screenplay, um, which feels like a real uh, hair tearing out category. Um, But this is the first time we'll be getting into the CODA surge, um, which I think is very real. Because it's not nominated anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, yeah, so we'll get to that too. Um, But I I think its strength and screenplay is maybe the clearest of anywhere. um, Because in some ways, like the Sundance breakout hit, 
is something that competes in screenplay often. Um, and then Sean Hader uh, wins at BAFTA as well as the WGA Awards like kind of over the past week. I think very indicative of how this movie is surging in affections. Um, its biggest competition is The Power of the Dog. Oh, again, we'll talk about that later. Um, but with Jane Campion being pretty much guaranteed to win Best Director, it seems like a pretty easy spot to be like, oh, okay, well, I'll give it to something else. I thought for a while Maggie Gyllenhaal would be the big competition here because The Lost Daughter has done so well at the Gotham Awards and the Indie Spirits and other places. Um, and, you know, Drive My Car and Dune are also nominated, both pretty incredible adaptation accomplishments. But to me, it seems like a competition between these three solo female writers. And fun fact, the last woman to win in this category as on her own, not as a co-writer, was Emma Thompson uh, back wow. in the 90s. So that's good company to be in. Wow. But anyway, I think it's CODA. Um, anybody disagree? I do think it's Coda, but I think that this category will tell us who wins Best Picture. So. Yeah, I like your theory about that, that they'll go hand in hand. But why don't you think someone would say, I'll give it to Coda and vote for Best? I mean, I guess individual voters could do that. But like, why do you think that they'll be in lockstep? Generally, the screenplay category has always forecast Best Picture. I mean, you've had a few exceptions like... Last year. Last year. But in the case of No Man Land, I mean, it was so known that the way Chloe Zhao makes movies and... And the the method, particularly of making that one, it's 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 one where, and there was also a, a father surge, which I suppose you could say about Coda if it doesn't necessarily go all the way. But you know, I think of something like the King's Speech winning screenplay as a kind of default, or Parasite beating Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there on the ro- road to Best Picture. Um, it, it tends to overlap, or, or something like Hurt Locker winning. Um, it, it's usually the case that because the screenplay categories are split, first of all, so you have a little bit less competition. And then I just think that Jane Campion is a really respected writer um, in addition to director. And I think that that movie is known as a real accomplishment of adaptation. But right now I'm predicting Coda. But I I, I don't necessarily think that if power surges overall, it would lose here. I, I have a hard time seeing that. Yeah, that would be a very interesting sign if it if it wins screenplay early in the night, then um, you can maybe make a pretty good guess. It'll win Best Picture, too. Mm. Did you know that King Richard was originally called Father Surge? <laughs> <laughs> and start Olivia Coleman somehow. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, original screenplay, um, which is even kind of crazier than adapted. Sorry to make you uh, talk even more, David, but you have really interesting insight on this. Oh, this is a really tough one. Uh, I think I may have already changed my mind. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that there's a lot of talk around this time of of precursors and how much weight we should give to them and whether we should treat them like literal points of math. And and this category is a really good case study where I think before industry groups started weighing in, the assumption was that Paul Thomas Anderson would be going against Kenneth Branagh here, um, depending on which was the stronger overall contender. Um, And when Paul Thomas Anderson won BAFTA, that to me said, oh, yeah, this category is basically done. Uh, he's never won an Oscar. The narrative is very clear. He's never had a clearer lane to win um, an Oscar just because this category, not that it's weak, but it doesn't really have a strong, you know, there's not really a strong Best Picture candidate here at this point. Be- Belfast is not one anymore. Mm-hmm. But then at the WGA's Licorice Pizza, which should have been even clearer of a front runner because Belfast wasn't eligible, lost to Don't Look Up. And I, I'm having a really hard time justifying Paul Thomas Anderson losing with the Writers Guild and then going on to win an Oscar. It just, it's hard to square that. He's such a respected writer. And I think that by the point that the writers were voting, it was known that this was potentially his moment. Don't look up winning there. 
to me signaled one that licorice pizza is weaker than we thought here and two that um you know the these guilds are bigger broader bodies of voters and don't look up is so popular that it's easy to see how it could push through if licorice pizza was a little bit weaker which leads me to my theory that <laughs> Belfast <laughs> is winning best original screenplay <laughs> um because this category is pretty much stuffed with movies that can only win here in addition to those 3 you have The Worst Person in the World, which, as Rebecca noted, is not winning uh, international feature as great as it is. And you also have... Uh, oh, King Richard, um, yeah. which is not which is not winning here, um, but is winning elsewhere. So you can just effect- effectively rule that one out, especially because it's not really a screenplay play. So you're going to get votes of general support for these four movies. Belfast is the most nominated movie of the group. I actually think it is a bit more of a screenplay... It has more appeal in this category than I would have expected or thought because it is this very personal, intimate, um, gently funny memoir of sorts that I think will appeal as a, as, a, as a piece of writing. And yeah, that's my theory. I could very well be wrong because it's quite open and the industry has a lot of love for a lot of these movies, but that's where I'm at right now. I like it. I think it. I want to stick with Paul Thomas Anderson, though, despite everything you just said. Um I just feel like Licorice Pizza is more popular than Belfast. And is, is this my Twitter bubble bias showing up here? I think a little bit. I mean, the, yeah. that's, oh, the other thing I should say is that I remember that Licorice Pizza really overperformed with BAFTA, you know, got a ton of nominations. And then with the Academy, it only got three, all for him. I'd like to think it's more popular. I mean, he's definitely still in it, but I just can't really see how him losing WGA... I just, it's hard for me to justify that for him to win mm. here. I hope he does. I mean, that is my should win. I also, and this may be my Twitter bubble, but I also do wonder how that criticism of the um, Asian accent may have affected him in this category because, you know, obviously that is the writing. And um, I, I know there's a, a thousand little social media scandals that come up during award season, but I do think that may affect his chances more than we realize. And I, and I, so I'm also going with Belfast. I do think because Belfast, you know, was such a front runner in the beginning, it does feel like people may, you know, reward it in this category because it, it isn't going to win anywhere else at this point. Um, And, you know, Branna is obviously well-loved. And as David said, this is such a personal story that he wrote. So I'm going with David's Belfast on this one too. Richard, join me or don't. Um, I, I think the WGA win for Don't Look Up is interesting because that was like, remember when David Sirota was going crazy on Twitter and all these <laughs> famous people rushed to defend him? People like that movie and support that movie's cause. And so I guess we should have been cognizant of that. And also the WGA, probably a lot of those people hate critics. So, <laughs> and the critics were the ones who vocally did not like Don't Look Up. Um, I, I think the Belfast theory is interesting. I could see Licorice Pizza's you know, all these movies have had little backlashes the last couple of weeks, but Licorice Pizza seems to be a little stickier than some of the other ones. So I trust your judgment on that, David, that Belfast will win. Of course, the should for me is worst person in the world, but there's no chance of that happening. Yeah. Well, we're just happy to see it show up there at all, I think. 
Um, okay, maybe we can move quickly through the supporting categories, which are fun to talk about and will be fun to watch handed out. But I don't know that there's a lot of debate about who the likely winners are here. Um, Rebecca, you wrote about why Ariana DeBose is almost definitely going to win supporting actress. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels pretty obvious at this point. She, you know, this category loves a a discovery and and she's had such a strong season. She's She's won the SAG. She won the critics choice i can't even remember how many times i've seen her on the stage this season i think my one question was anjanu ellis has really like in the room everyone is obsessed with her she she's just she gives such a wonderful performance that will smith has been pointing out how wonderful she is in every one of his acceptance speeches so that was my one kind of maybe but it just feels so locked for ariana that would be such a fun surprise not i i would be i would be happy to see ariana debose win but anjanu ellis would be a thrill to watch win. Yeah. So thrilling. Um, all right. Well, supporting actor, similar vibe. Um, I wrote about that because um, it's just really interesting how there was this handover in momentum where Cody Smith McPhee won everything and then all of a sudden Troy Kotzer won everything and never stopped. And mm-hmm. I, I don't, I feel like we kind of came around to the idea like, oh, Troy Kotzer is probably a strong contender because he keeps getting nominated. And then it's like a switch flipped. And with Coda kind of in, in really neck and neck races against Power of the Dog in two other categories, this feels like the really easy, obvious place to reward the movie. And, you know, I think everyone, not just actors, can resonate with the with the story of someone who's been working for a long time and who's never really gotten a role to shine in. Um, and if you like Coda, he is such like the emotional heart of the movie. And I'm sure he'll give a great speech because he's given nothing but great speeches. And And Cody is 25 and he'll have his turn. So I don't I'm sure he feels disappointed that his momentum kind of slowed, but I think he'll be fine, too. I'm going to flip up the order of our write-up a little bit um, and do Best Actor next, because, again, that's another fate accompli. Um, Rebecca, you wrote about why Will Smith is going to win that Oscar after all. I really appreciate you giving me all the, like, very short things <laughs> in this <laughs> list. Um, yes, it, it, it very much feels like no one could touch Will Smith in this race. Um, again, he wants SAG, he wants Critics' Choice, he's giving killer speeches at every one of these things, he's charming the room, he's, I feel like a lot of people have wanted him to give a performance to then give him an award for, and, and mm-hmm. this is it. Um, you know, I mean, I think at the beginning of the season, we kind of wondered um you know he's up against Denzel who obviously is such a phenomenon and and is nominated and wins all the time and so we wondered if that was going to be more of a competition and you know I I think there's a discussion about Benedict for a while but this one is is Will all the way for sure. You see Benedict as the closest thing to competition right? Yeah I do because I, I, I you know Power of the Dog as we've been talking about is is clearly beloved and respected and and his performance is really impressive so you know I thought maybe there's a chance this is where they they give it that sort of love but it it, it feels a little bit like a long shot now all right I'm actually gonna switch it up again and do one more sure thing before we get to the craziest uh, races of the night David Jane Campion's gonna win best director yeah yep <laughs> that <laughs> <There's> great just- <laughs> There's no one else, really, who has any momentum in this category. Um, do you think if Sean Hader was nominated, we'd be really tearing our hair out thinking that she might upset? Or is it just so clear? Well, it's funny. I, I was thinking about BAFTA, and this is going to lead into my best actress theory, so hold on. Mm. Um, but Coda was nominated not really for picture or director there, um, but it clearly had surged in support with those voters. And I wonder, 
how far it would have gone if it had made it to the to a director or picture nomination, given how much more support it had when the voting for the winners commenced versus voting for the nominees. So yeah, I think that we would be talking about her as the spoiler for sure if she were nominated here. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about spoilers and best actress. Um, David, you made my favorite prediction of anybody um, because <laughs> tr- it's such a toss up that it's really true that anybody could win. So why not go wild, right? Why not go wild? I feel like I just keep laying out these incredibly elaborate theories. And this is going to be the worst one yet. <laughs> what is Vanity Fair's red string budget, by the way? Because I think David has blown it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The reason why I, I did not predict Jessica Chastain, which it's obvious that I'm not predicting Jessica Chastain, um, is I think with all that we've been talking about the Academy and how it's changed and the decisions that it's been making lately over the past six months, it's hard for me to argue that it would end with Jessica Chastain winning this category. That's not even really a knock on her performance so much as it is a commentary on how most voters probably feel about the movie overall, um, how small of a movie and how American of a movie it is. And Jessica Chastain is really beloved and she's definitely my, you know, probably my runner up here, but it feels like a classic case of a consensus choice with a lot of precursor groups that doesn't have enough support within the actual academy. Could very well be wrong. Her moment could be, she could be marching toward her moment. But I sort of, I went down the list of these actresses, my least likely to win. I know there are people who think she's still in it, but I think Nicole Kidman is the one who can be really ruled out here. She, first of all, has not been on the campaign trail at all for phase two after she lost SAG. According to my Getty Images search, she has she has been nowhere. <laughs> and again, the the Academy's branches like writing and makeup and hairstyling have been underwhelmed by the movie compared to industry groups. So if she didn't win with SAG or Critics' Choice, I just don't see how she would pull it off here with only the support really of the actors branch. And even then, would she be the favorite of the actors branch? That's not clear either. I'm interested in Kristen Stewart, who has had this incredibly <laughs> prolific seven months on the campaign trail. She has been everywhere. And I almost felt like Rebecca, I don't know how you felt, but by the end there was there was a kind of sweetness to it of just her going to the PGAs and the Indie Spirits where she's not nominated and just sitting through <laughs> long, long, long ceremonies and talking to whoever will talk to her and and seeming to really genuinely, you know, appreciate the moment. So I had a moment where I thought maybe that would tip her, especially because she was the early, early front runner here. But again, being the only representative of your movie is tough. Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter. The movie is well liked by the Academy, but I I almost feel like there is a bit of fatigue with her. And, and that's why I'm not predicting her, even though in some ways she makes the most sense as a kind of art house, broadly liked contender from a movie that got support elsewhere. And all of this leads me to Penelope Cruz. And Penelope Cruz was not even on the BAFTA long lists, which I thought was interesting because that effectively ruled her out of an Oscar nomination for me because both this year and last year, only one actor who was not on the long lists went on to Oscar nominations. So the fact that she was able to overcome that indicated to me that the movie just hadn't been very widely seen at that point. And Rebecca and I did a lot of reporting in the lead up to the nominations that you know, led us to predict Penelope Cruz for nomination because people were talking about the movie and loving the movie and really rooting for her to be among that five. And again, I've heard from Academy voters 
rooting for her and voting for her uh, in the lead up to the winner and not necessarily thinking she has as much of a shot as she does, um, which is for many the Olivia Coleman theory, right? That when mm-hmm. she won, when she beat Glenn Close, it was she wasn't really considered much of a threat. People loved her in that movie, and she went all the way. Um, Parallel Mothers also got nominated by the music branch. It probably would have been nominated for international feature if Spain had submitted it. It seems like the movie has a, enough visibility with this group of voters. And I think Penelope Cruz is really extraordinary in the movie. Um, and I, I think these voters agree. And I believe that where the Academy is now... And the lack of consensus in this category, where not a single Oscar nominee was recognized by BAFTA, uh, tells me that a passion vote can pull through. And I think she is the passion vote. And I think she is the wild card who will win. And I'm done now. And I'm sorry that was so long. (laughs) (laughs) I love this theory, though, because I think you can make a case that, like, whoever you like the best will win because literally anyone could win. So, like, everyone's prediction is just there should win, right? Yeah, I I think, honestly, it kind of comes down to that, except for maybe Jessica Chastain, because there is evidence that enough voters can agree on her, right, among these various configurations. And I I was predicting her for a while, but if if you were to believe this category is as chaotic and strange and unclear as it's been the whole season, and I think... Chastain winning Critics' Choice and SAG doesn't tell us too much. Critics' Choice likes to be predictive. They voted right after SAG's winners. I think that her as a SAG winner in retrospect made a certain degree of sense, even though all of us were shocked by it. It's just not clear enough to me that she would be the clear favorite. And so, yeah, I think you have to go with your heart. And I'm going with my heart. Richard, what do you think? Well, I mean, this is, I didn't expect this to happen, but like in this category, but my should and will, I guess, now match up because <laughs> I would have put Penelope for sh- for should, and I'm going to. I don't know. I think I, I appreciate uh, all the the intricate logic that David just laid out. Um, and, 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 and look, let's rewind the tape to me texting David and Rebecca months ago saying, Nicole Gunn's going to win. You're all dumb for not seeing what I see. I'm, you know, and uh, so obviously I don't know what I'm doing. In it wasn't a malicious text. No, it wasn't. No, <laughs> but um, so I, I trust that reasoning. But then again, I think I, at least speaking personally, can sometimes something like the loss finale, get myself really like worked up into theories that like, it's like, but there are some other more obvious answers. And I, so I'm just going to say Chastain won the SAG. She's going to win best actress, like, because that's the most immediate evidence we have, even though that didn't match up literally last year. Yep. I think I'm going to go with Olivia Coleman for the (laughs) reason, honestly. Uh, Yes. I'd like, I don't see why she can't do it twice. And I think, as I was just saying, The Lost Daughter has been so popular on the indie circuit, which those voting groups don't necessarily overlap. But I do think The Lost Daughter is strong. I think it's something a lot of people have seen and people love her. And she won an Emmy when everyone thought Emma Corrin was going to do it. So why not do the same thing again? My dog jumped on me, but I was I was going to say something along those lines. <laughs> Rebecca, you going to pick another one? <laughs> Someone else? I Well... I've talked myself out of each of these people as you all were talking. So I think I'm going to go with Coleman, too. You know, the logical side of me says Chastain. And and it does sort of feel like people want to give her, like, it's time. This is the movie to give her this award. But I just feel like if I'm picturing who takes the stage and then I say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It feels like it's going to be Olivia Coleman. That's my guess, too. I don't know. Who knows? Another way of thinking about it to that point is... Does Jessica Chastain benefit or is she hurt 
by the sense that she's the front runner mm-hmm. in this category. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I lean towards her being hurt by that. I, I don't know that there's enough of this groundswell wanting to bring her to her moment yet, mm. just yet. The one well, SAG member that I texted about the best actress race did not seem very up at all on Chastain. So, uh, and they are also an Academy member. So, um, maybe that's are they a some, TikToker? Some, <laughs> I can't. I, if if I said yes, it would reveal who it is. So I can't. <laughs> um, well, that brings us to Best Picture, which I think is as tight as Best Actress, honestly. But because of the preferential ballot, I think it's going to work a little bit differently, and we're not going to get kind of the vote splitting that could lead to any outcome, which would be really funny if, like, Don't Look Up just won uh, at the end of all of this. I think we all... Funny in a certain way, yeah. (laughs) Well, it would prevent climate change from ending the world, so it's a net good. Um, I think we all are pretty clear that it's down to Coda and Power of the Dog, and um, as of yesterday, I was very insistent that Power of the Dog was going to pull through, and as of today, (laughs) as I wrote our predictions, I went to Coda, which makes me feel like a real turncoat, and I think any time that I decide to change my mind at the last minute, it probably will be wrong. Um, but I think David's piece, uh, laying out the parallels between CODA and Little Miss Sunshine is really what convinced me um, because the nominations uh, are almost exactly the same. The path through awards is almost exactly the same down to the PGA win. Um, but when Little Miss Sunshine lost to The Departed, the preferential ballot didn't exist. And I think the idea of people not only putting CODA number one on their ballot, but putting it two and three feels really plausible. Whereas I can imagine a lot of people putting Power of the Dog at number one and then at eight. Um, I think that movie is can be divisive and um, maybe emotionally chilly for some people. And we get some Best Picture winners that are like that. I think 12 Years a Slave is maybe the best example, um, but not mm-hmm. always. I think even Parasite, which was a really um, artistically accomplished movie, people loved it. They got excited about it in the room the way that they've been doing for CODA. Uh, and I think that power in the era of the preferential ballot um, can carry it over the top. But I also think it's a coin flip, and it could go to Power of the Dog. So uh, don't trust me. But who agrees with me? Is anyone still predicting power to give that case? I am not. So no. I think we're all coded now. Wow. I think the Academy, like so many people around the world, are looking to feel good, you know? And Power of the Dog will, you know, get its nice technical prizes, its directing prize. And we think it'll get its technical prizes, but we didn't predict it to win. <laughs> well, it'll get it'll them. get it'll get directing. Yeah. Sure. And that'll you be know, a moment. Which, yeah. And and that's that's kind of that movie's coronation. It's that artist coronation, and then you know Coda just it it it, ha- it has a momentum you described, Katie. But it also it it I think that maybe there has been a sense you know from Kimmel and other people saying like why all this serious stuff you know all that you know and, and Coda has its drama like that's that's for sure. But like why can't something nice and life affirming and sweet be the best movie of a very difficult year? That, I think, is probably a pervasive psychology among not just Academy voters, but a lot of people. Um, and so that's why I think CODA will win, just because it's the sentimental favorite that even if it's not everyone's number one, it'll be a lot of number mm-hmm. twos and plenty of number ones at that. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you something I've noticed at the events that I think really helps this film? The CODA cast travels as a pack. At all these events, it's like, here's the cast of CODA presenting. Here's the cast of CODA doing this. Here's... And it makes it feel like a movement in the room. You know, they're surrounded by cameras and fans and all these things. And it's a small thing. But when you're in the room, you really feel like you're watching something special happen, which I think voters are attracted to. Whereas like a lot of these films are 
sort of splitting up their groups because there's been so many insane events over the last week. You know, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse are at this one and Benedict's at this one. And and it, you don't, I don't know, there's something really powerful about seeing this group together, especially, you know, as as deaf actors, you see people applauding them through sign language. And it just, it feels really powerful in the room. And, and there are a lot of voters in these rooms. So I do think there is something about wanting to feel part of a movement like that. Which and echoes what, Parasite, you know. Yeah, and, and, mm-hmm. the Parasite cast in. And you consider the cast of Dune has never even met each other. So... <laughs> <laughs> There is a point there <laughs> yeah. in terms of that movie never really getting off the ground for a yeah. So I feel I think we've seen a lot of, to me, somewhat overblown talk of like Coda becoming the award season villain since it's PGA win, because I think a lot of people love Power the Dog and for good reason. Um, I do think if it wins Best Picture, it will get the Shakespeare in Love treatment for a while of being like, oh, my yep. God, like that thing won this like master, like beat this masterpiece. Um, but Shakespeare in Love's reputation, I think, has very rightfully been restored over the years, maybe less so for Crash and for Green Book. Um yeah, it's a small movie, and I hope it can kind of withstand that level of um, controversy if it wins. But I don't think that means they shouldn't want it to win Best Picture, because who doesn't want that? I still don't have a gauge on how widely seen it mm-hmm. was. Like, I mean, this has nothing to do with its Oscar chances, but will it be received as like a populist choice? I it's that that stream that's that big open streaming question of and, and we should talk a little bit about the significance of the fact that a streaming movie is going to win best picture mm-hmm. almost certainly um yeah and that netflix will get beaten to the punch by apple which is yee. hilarious it's 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 funny like netflix has made incredible movies by incredible filmmakers and should be applauded for that and should you know win oscars for that but they have so transparently been pushing toward this and have gotten like the, you know, the prize snatched out of their jaws. But is it, would this be like the fourth time? Yeah. I mean, it's very, I don't think the dynamics are as similar as some people are making out, but the actual experience of campaigning Roma and getting closer and closer and missing out to a less critically liked, more broadly appealing movie in the end is seems destined to repeat itself. I actually feel pretty confident in the Coda win at this point. Sometimes the differences between film Twitter and the Academy are exaggerated a little bit, but I do think that where, whereas Coda has found its um, enemies on social media among some people, I don't think that anyone in that Academy dislikes that movie. I really, I think that that's what we're seeing with stuff like PGA and a BAFTA screenplay win is it's very broadly liked. And that's how you win Best Picture. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
So I'm on the line now with Bronwyn Cosgrave. Bronwyn, you are the author of The Definitive Study of the Oscars Fashion Phenomenon, which is made for each other, Fashion and the Academy Awards, a wonderful book. Uh, You're the host of Fashion Conversations, uh, a Wondercast podcast, and you are an Oscar fashion expert. I assume you feel pretty comfortable with that title. I'll take it. Thank you, Katie. (laughs) It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here and have fashion to talk about. It has been such a rough time for award shows and award show fashion in particular. And I think in the in the era of the Zoom Golden Globes, we really did our best. Um, but over the past few weeks, we've had the SAG Awards, the BAFTA Awards, an opportunity for people to really step out and be in a physical space and wear something amazing. Have, have you felt relief just watching all of this come back? I don't think it ever goes away. Hmm. Um, you know, since 1929... Actors have had to get dressed for the Oscars. They're always wearing something. I can't say that I'm particularly wowed um, by what I'm seeing Um, in previous years, particularly when we've been submerged by culture wars. Now we actually have a conflict on our hands, and I'm seeing what I feel is a lot of celebrities wearing free clothes. I'm Mm. not seeing a lot of individuality. You know, Jessica Chastain has made a statement about, you know, the, the craft categories and said that she might possibly skip the red carpet because her makeup artist, Linda Doubts, isn't going to receive uh, an Oscar on television. So there's a lot of things swirling around. I mean, I think everyone's putting their best foot forward. I don't think there should be, you know, best and worst dress lists. What's great about the red carpet is it is a forum for individuality. So while I complain, you know, who am Mm -hmm. I to really say, oh, you know, I don't like the look of this because Mm -hmm. this isn't about me, you know? And now actually the red carpet maybe. 30, 40 years ago, it was really about individuality. It was about Cher going to the Oscars and crazy Bob Mackie. You know, stars had to buy their own clothes. Now there is this huge economy, which is part of the Hollywood economy. So they're doing what they're supposed to do. You know, they're working it. Yeah. I mean, you see someone like uh, Kristen Stewart, who's had this contract with Chanel for years and years and years, and she's showing up absolutely everywhere. And I think a wide variety of looks, but they are all kind of part of the same narrative, right? Like, it, it, it's hard to know how much of someone's personality you're getting out of what they're wearing to these things. Penelope Cruz, another one who works for Chanel now, and you see her in Chanel. I mean, Kristen Stewart has mixed it up a bit with, you know, Brandon Maxwell. I think she was wearing Dolce & Gabbana. But yes, the Spirit Awards, is it the place for a spangly Chanel pantsuit? I mean, again, that's up to her (laughs) and her stylist. I think she's incredible, Kristen Stewart. I think she has done her job injecting youth into the house of Chanel. And certainly Chanel was part of her film, uh, which Mm -hmm. for me was a bit of a head scratcher. But, you know, it's this place where... The big carpet, which is the Oscars red carpet, which is the carpet that really, really matters, is rarely a place for an individual statement. And I that is an actor wearing an independent brand, a brand that they're not getting paid to wear, actually, you know, if they are an official nominee or a presenter. Well, what about Lady Gaga? She's someone we think of as being kind of a rule breaker in many aspects, um, but she she is very closely tied to a lot of fashion houses. Have you been uh, pleased with anything she's been doing this season? 
I think she's making lemonade, you know? She (laughs) busted it out with the House of Gucci. She's an extraordinary artist. She's a performance artist. I wouldn't call her entirely an original. I think she's incredible at borrowing and a sampler. But, you know, she's making it fun. And that's another big thing about the Oscars. It's fun. And, you know, with the Critics' Choice Awards and the BAFTAs and her appearing on both red carpets and doing this really swift turnaround, Ralph Lauren and Gucci. I mean, she's she's incredible. I think she's got a really positive energy, positive force. And she's all about dreaming. You know, she's living a dream. And, and the takeaway really what this should be about really is The red carpet is a place to make people dream. You know, do we want to dream right now where there is a horror going on, which is the war? Yeah, I mean, the the presence of Ukraine, um, not only in the red carpet, but in the Oscars themselves, I think is a really open question. And at the SAG Awards, you saw um, Greta Lee, who's on the morning show, wear a a very uh, pointedly blue and yellow gown. Um, Do you expect to see more of that? Are people going to try to um, make a statement either fashion-wise or commentary-wise? You know, in times of conflict, the Academy has issued dress memos. I think during World War II, there was a dress code. Actors were asked to, if they were servicemen, wear their uniforms. Women were asked to not wear jewelry and uh, wear wear dark, sober clothes. And we've seen that play out um, during the Vietnam War, Jane Fonda appeared in a YSL uh, black pantsuit with a Mao collar. The war in Iraq, over and over again, there have been these sober statements. I'm not picking that up. You know, Amy Schumer has talked about integrating Vladimir Zelensky into the telecast. I, I scratch my head about that, too. I think he has other things to do. I think uh, (laughs) he's got other things to do. And it's really, it's this really tricky thing right now where everybody is a critic. So Mm -hmm. an actor will go out in in blue and yellow and they'll get lambasted or lampooned. You know, this isn't enough. Oh, this is a Hollywood liberal mailing it in. You know, what are you really doing? So it's, it's one of those things. You know, something that I will say that I am a little bit surprised is that Hollywood pre-pandemic was making an effort with this push for sustainability in fashion. I don't Mm. really pick that up anymore. These are dresses that have huge carbon footprints. But again, it is part of this economy. And I do think brands are trying to improve their impact, you know, and improve fashion's impact on climate change. But that was something that was really part of the conversation. And it's just not really there anymore. Yeah. Um, Back to your idea about individuality on the red carpet. Is there anyone who either pre-pandemic or since then has been embodying that kind of individual expression that you're looking for? Oh, yeah. I mean, Zendaya, this Mm. is a woman whose career is played out on the red carpet from her pushing back um, when her hair was somewhat looking like dreadlocks. I can't remember exactly what was said. I wasn't there. But, you know, you've seen her just really flourish. Um, Lupita Nyong'o, another um, incredible performer. The red carpet was integral in her rise. I remember when she arrived on the red carpet in her blue 
Nairobi blue Prada dress. I was there. I turned around. It was breathtaking. She'll be presenting um, Regina Hall. Uh, Mm -hmm. She is one of the hosts. Wayman and Micah are her stylists. And she really busted out at the Met Gala a few years ago in Dapper Dan and Gucci. I think she's a real fashion girl. She's talked about how Elizabeth Taylor has been her um, kind of touchstone when it comes to dressing up for the red carpet, which I think is really fantastic. There are so many women. There are Rita Moreno. This is like her 50 years on the red carpet this Mm -hmm. year, which is just amazing. A 90-year-old, a couple award shows ago wearing Greta Constantine, which I think is a phenomenal label that dresses the most interesting, impactful women from Amanda Gorman to, you know, Rita Moreno. There, Zoe Kravitz, I could go on and on yeah. and on. I think what is really phenomenal this year, and I think the Academy really has pushed this, is I think there's this new generation um, appearing on the red carpet and, you know, also on stage and part of film. And it's a diverse group of men and women and also men. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the men, too, because I was looking at the BAFTAs and, like, Riz Ahmed, who's nominated this year uh, because he uh, co-directed a live-action short. Um, He's always been known to kind of step out in something fascinating. Um, Who else um, on the male side are you looking forward to seeing what they pull out? Well, I think, you know, the Oscar for male individuality goes to Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, he's he's been there for a while. Again, like like a Zendaya or, you know, like a Lupita Nyong'o, He's someone whose career rise, you know, the red carpet was part of it. And certainly he's got this great look and it just gets better and better and better. He can wear anything, you know, like a Harry Styles, but different in a way. Um, But Andrew Garfield, I mean, Mm -hmm. in that purple Valentino blazer at the Spirits and I think brown Slacks. I mean, he's really, and busting out all this really chic Saint Laurent, he's really been, I think he's, again, one of the leaders. And of course, Daniel Kaluuya. I mean, that incredible Prada coat with that fuzzy blue fur, mm-hmm. whatever it was. Um, I'm sure it's ethical. Um, but yeah, you know, I, don't, he, I don't think they skinned a blue animal. <laughs> he's, he's someone who I think really owns it, really owns it. Another person, you know, Rami Malek. Rami mm-hmm. is, I think, again, aligned with the House of Saint you know, with Lucy Boynton. They are an incredible couple and they always make your head turn. Yeah. So what would feel like a success at the Oscars red carpet to you? Like what would make you wake up on Monday morning and feel like everyone really got the assignment? I don't think it's about success or failure. I think it's about shining and you know, Madonna's proved it. If you want to dress in a controversial way, you've got the ticket. No one else has that ticket in their hand. So it's about what you really want to do. You know, just like, honestly, this is just my opinion. I don't want to see one of these young women weighted down by like dowager jewelry, Mm. looking like a Christmas tree. That often happens. We're going to see a lot of young women. Um, but I also love these sort of artistic, I hate to use the word below the line, but, you know, these the, the artisanal categories often have the most interesting outfits. Someone mm-hmm. I always watch for is Diane Warren. Oh, yeah. Um, the composer, because she always wears these great pantsuits, 
Ruth Carter is going to be on the red carpet. I would like to for people to look at not just the stars, but the artisans who are contributing to the craft of motion picture production in Hollywood. Yeah, I always think of Jenny Bevan, who uh, won her Oscar for Mad Max wearing that leather jacket. She's nominated this year, so who knows? The bag lady? <laughs> she, I mean, Jenny Bevan is amazing. And she was called a bag lady by Stephen Fry. And she just steps up to it. She doesn't care. Oh, and yeah. She's a wild child. She's amazing. And she's and forgotten she's the more about runner. fashion than most people will ever know. So she can do whatever she wants. She's the front runner with you yeah. know, Jacqueline West for Dune in costume. Yep. And that... That to me, I'm always interested, you know, time was the costume designers in Hollywood owned the red carpet. It was Edith Head. It was Helen Rose dressing the biggest stars. You know, today they don't. There have been some interesting um, kind of, I think, over the last few weeks, some interesting midpoints of costume and fashion. Zoe Kravitz wore a Catwoman-inspired dress, uh, which was a, you know, a, a collaboration between the costume designer of the Batman and Saint Laurent. And I love when that kind of thing happens because you're getting a sense of the character and a, a, the hand of fashion. So it is this collaboration. It's about a relationship. It's about the film. And I would love to see that kind of story continuing to be told in Hollywood. Yeah, the idea of like Penelope Cruz showing up in an Almodovar red or something like that that really feels in line with the movie they're from. That's a that's a fascinating thing to hope for. Yeah. Uh, well, Brahman, maybe last question for you. You're going to the Oscars. Who are you wearing and what are you wearing? Oh, should I tell? Really? I bought my outfit <laughs> in about 10 minutes. I've gone to the Oscars. <laughs> I think I've gone to the Oscars about 10 times. And what I kind of realized uh, the first few times is If you're a member of the audience, you don't have to wear a gown, which was very liberating. So Mm. I am wearing, I always wear Dries Van Noten to the Oscars. So I went and bought this amazing skirt and uh, it's an outfit. I just pulled it all together in about 20 minutes at Bergdorf Goodman and I am off. Well, then what are you looking forward to seeing inside the ceremony too? Real last I love the whole thing. So I think- this is what I really adore about the Oscars. And I have watched every single telecast ever produced when I was writing Made for Each Other. I did that. Yeah. And what always takes my breath away to the point where I'm shedding a tear, I hate to say it, is just the production. It's the stage design. It's the craft that goes into making the Oscars the most incredible show. And it's the musical numbers. It's the speeches. It's the mistakes. It's the actors walking up on stage striding. It's the amazing statuette that Cedric Gibbons designed in the late 20s and it's still being bestowed. I mean, there's a tradition. I love to see how the traditions get pushed forward every year by really thoughtful people. Um, Well, I hope you have a great time. (laughs) Thank you, Katie. I hope to see you. Yeah, I'll be at our party. Um, So I'll be in the back room at the party, sitting here on this very computer um, for most of the night. And then, um, you know, when things sort of quiet down the red carpet, we get to go inside and join join the show. So save me a seat. Yeah, look out for um, look out for my colleagues at the Oscars though. They'll be uh, they'll be the ones wandering around trying to um, snoop on everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Will do. 
That does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening to this supersized edition. We'll be back Monday after the Oscars for our bleary morning after take on how this year's awards shook out. In the meantime, follow us at VF.com where you can read our predictions and everything else we've talked about. You can follow us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. Follow Vanity Fair on Twitter for all the updates from the Oscar party. And you can follow us on our own. You probably know where to find us by now. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.